Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn them with me to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John, chapter 14. Uh, You probably heard the expression, if something sounds too good to be true, it's... All right. Yeah, that's right, what you said. (laughs) Um, I remember when I was... uh, uh, younger, and I used to watch TV much more than I do now, and I used to stay up l- much later than I do now. Uh, I remember seeing those uh, those late night infomercials. Do they still do that? Uh, they do in- infomercials. I- I'm these days. I- I'm just I'm out like at you know 9:30, man. So I'm not up that that late anymore. Um, yeah, the- these slick hour long commercials, uh, and they're selling all kinds of products and making all kinds of promises about things that'll just make your, your life so much better. You know, you buy, buy, this, buy this money-making kit and find out who, how you can make $50,000 a week placing tiny classified ads in newspapers. Maybe you saw that one. Uh, or take this pill or take this supplement and lose as much weight as you want, uh, as fast as you want, and, and you can eat whatever you want, and you can exercise as little as you want. Those are always tempting for me. The amazing thing is that people are often very quick to believe these promises. It's why these these companies stay in business. But you know what? When we we open up our Bibles and you, you look at the pages of Scripture, what do we find? We find amazing promises. We 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 find we find Uh, promises that maybe seem too good to be true, but unlike the infomercials, they actually are true, and we don't believe them. We we are quick to believe a late-night advertisement that is false, and we are slow to believe the promises of God that are true. But these promises we see in the Bible, these these promises that we're going to see this morning uh, in John chapter 14 that we have been seeing throughout John chapter 14 are not promises given by some man who is uh, 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 some fast-talking, late-night infomercial sales guru. They are promises given by a man who is the way, a man who is the life, and a man who is the truth. As we continue our sermon series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, we find Jesus just hours away from His crucifixion, and He is giving words of comfort and encouragement to His disciples because these disciples have troubled hearts. They are fearful. It's a dark time. They've been told that uh, one of their numbers is going to stab Jesus in the back and betray Him. Uh, they, they've, been, they've been told that another of their number is going to deny Jesus. And worst of all, Jesus says He's going away and He's going to die. Imagine how gut-wrenching this is for the disciples. They have given up everything to follow Jesus. They have invested all their hopes and dreams on Him. They have banked their very lives on following Christ. He's their only hope. And the Bible says their hearts are troubled. They are fearful and anxious, and they are on the breaking point. Uh, breaking point. They are in despair. And it's not hard to imagine how they feel. You're just going to leave us, Jesus, when things are at their worst? What's going to happen to us, Jesus? What are we going to do? We can't make it without you. Everything that we have hoped for and worked for is crashing down around us, and you're leaving us all alone. And in their darkest moment so far, in their moment of greatest despair so far, Jesus comforts them with the most amazing revelations and promises. Let's read the beginning of those promises right now. Please stand with me in honor of the reading of the words of our God. We're in John chapter 14, and even though the sermon 
is going to be specifically zeroing in on verses 12 through 14. For the sake of context, and to look at all these promises and, and words of encouragement that Jesus gave, I want to start at, chapter, at verse 1. Jesus says, "'Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going.' Thomas said to him, "'Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way?' Jesus said to him, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Father, these are amazing and spectacular promises and words of encouragement and assurance that you have given us through your Son. And so, Father, I pray that these words this morning would do the work that they were intended to do, which is give us assurance and give us hope and give us encouragement. I, in and of myself, I have nothing of value to say to my brothers and sisters this morning, but you do, Father. And so, Father, help me to be faithful to your word. Help me to be faithful in saying and explaining what you are saying, that my brothers and sisters might be comforted and encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. After sharing tremendous promises and words of comfort in verses 1 through 11, which we've examined the past couple of weeks, we now move on to verses 12 through 14, where Jesus gives more amazing promises. They are equally encouraging and relevant to disciples in AD 33 and in AD 2018. And the first of these glorious promises is found in verse 12, and it's this one. If you believe in Jesus, uh, you will carry on the works of Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you will carry on the works of Jesus. Look what he says in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Now, consider how this might have been encouraging for the 11 disciples in that upper room with Jesus that night. Jesus is about to die, and so you would think that then that his messianic promises would die with him. And so it's easy to see the disciples throwing up their hands in the air and just, and just thinking, what's the point? What's the purpose of carrying on? Jesus says, the works that I do will not end after I depart. They will continue. In fact, they'll be continued through you. But Jesus is actually saying more than that. Look carefully and see who this promise is for. Who is it for? 
Is it for those 11 disciples only? Uh, Look at it closely. Who does Jesus say will do the works of the disciples? Whoever believes in me. This is not just for the apostles. This is not just for super spiritual people who are on a higher plane than other Christians. It's not just for charismatics. Whoever believes in Jesus, in other words, Christians, Jesus is talking about you. He is talking to you. You will do the works that Jesus does. So then the natural question you're going to have is, what are the works that I'm to be doing? Now, some people would say that that means miracles in regards to works. And sometimes the Gospel of John uses the word works to refer to miraculous works. So, some conclude Jesus did miracles, and we carry on Jesus' work by doing miracles too. And certainly we see the miracle-working ministry replicated in the apostles, don't we? Uh, Read the book of Acts. Jesus healed, the apostles healed. Jesus cast out demons, so did the apostles. Jesus raised the dead, so did Peter. And so some would go as far to say that if you cannot do those types of works uh, that Jesus did, the miraculous works, that means you just don't have enough faith. But there's a problem with that notion, namely that the Bible clearly says elsewhere that we should not expect that all Christians can do miracles. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 12, in his, in his teaching on how different members of the church have different functions in the church, he writes this, do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak tongues? Do all interpret? Now, those are rhetorical questions, and the answer is no. Not all Christians work miracles or heal. In fact, the biblical testimony is that such things are very rare. And after the death and ascension of Jesus, they're restricted mostly to the apostles. If you you read the biblical testimony, that's exactly what you'll see. So when Jesus is speaking about you doing works He did, He's not talking about walking on water or healing diseases or raising the dead, those spectacular visual displays of supernatural power. What's more is while John uses the word works to sometimes refer to miracles, he doesn't always use it in a way that restricts it to miracles. Works in in John's gospel is a much broader term that can refer to words and, and deeds of various kinds. The word John uses to unambiguously refer to Jesus' miracles is the word signs. But Jesus doesn't say, whoever believes in me will do the signs I do. He says, works. So again, what does Jesus mean by works? Well, for help, let's see how Jesus describes His work, and in particular, the purpose of His works as elsewhere described in John's gospel. Let's let's see how the, the word is used in the immediate context in verse 11. Back up a verse. Look what Jesus says. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Okay, so the works that Jesus does, whatever they are, are meant to help people believe. He says, believe on account of the works. So whatever the works are, they are works that point to His truth, works that point to God. And then Jesus, in the next verse, turns to the disciples and says, whoever believes will do works like that too. 
That's what your life is going to be. Your life will be patterned after mine in that it will be full of all kinds of works that point people to God and its truth, works that God uses to bring people to belief in Jesus. Let me give you another clue. Jesus in verse 12, again, says, whoever believes in me will do the works I do. Now, there's only one other time the phrase, do the works I do, shows up, and it's in John chapter 10, verse 25. I'll put it up for you. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So, the works of Jesus bear witness about Jesus. They speak the truth about Jesus. They point to Jesus and His truth. Let me, let me give you one more. Again, we're in the Gospel of John where we're trying to look at the immediate context here. And this is Jesus praying to the, to the Father. He says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So, the work that Jesus did led to the glorification of God. So, if you combine uh, John 10.25 and 14.11 and 17.4, we see that the work of Jesus are works that bear witness about Jesus, that help people believe, and they bring glory to God. The, the, the point is that the totality of Jesus' life, not just His miraculous signs, but His words... His acts of compassion, His love for God, His love for other people, His hatred for injustice and immorality. Jesus' whole life was a testimony bearing witness to God the Father and Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that is exactly what the Christian life is. Every Christian does this. Jesus says so in verse 12. It's not just super apostles who do the work that Jesus does. It's not just missionaries that do the work Jesus does. It's not just experienced Christians. Jesus says, whoever believes in me will do these works. And what do these works do? They put the spotlight on Jesus. They put God on display. That that was exactly the point of Jesus' works, and that's the point of the works that you will do. And so I think, for example, again, staying in the book of John, John 3, 21, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. And as God is on display through your works, what happens? Matthew chapter 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Or how about 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12? Now we're expanding outside of the Gospel of John, obviously. It says in, in Peter 2, 1 Peter 2, 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. That word deeds in the Greek, that's the same word that's translated elsewhere as works, the, the word ergon. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Elsewhere, it's written... Whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. That was Jesus' life. That's to be my life. That's to be your life. And and what we're seeing from these verses is not just for your benefit, but for the good of the world. That they may glorify God on the day of visitation. So, the practical implications of this for your life are quite simple, actually. And that's, you do not exist 
to point to yourself, to your accomplishments, to your money, to your career, to your possessions. You exist to glorify God and point people to Jesus. That's why you're on planet Earth. This is what your life and my life are to be all about, to put Jesus Christ and His gospel on display before the world for the good of the world. Nobody is served and nobody is saved by you being in the spotlight and people thinking that you're awesome. Be careful of the works that you do, even religious works, even service in the church, even meeting the needs of the world. We've got to ask ourselves, why are we doing this? What's the aim Is it to bear witness to the world about how wonderful we are? To get accolades from others and pats on the back? Your goal, instead, is to speak and to do life in a way that puts Christ on display as you decrease and He increases. That is the work that you are to be about. Let me give you another example. He doesn't use the word work here, but the the idea is the same. John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So once again, we see that the life of the believer is not meant to point to the believer. He says, if you love one another, that's going to bear witness to something about Jesus and bear witness to the world about Jesus. The world will know that we belong to Jesus and we are a reflection of who he is and what he's all about as we do the works that Jesus does. And here's what's so exciting about this. Everybody in this room is a, who's a Christian can start doing this right now. You, you can do this no matter where God has put you in life. You don't have to be some sort of missionary overseas or some sort of pastor to do this. If God has called you to work a secular job, you can do the works that Jesus did through your life, through your love, through the words of your lips. Through your demeanor and attitude, you can do these things to testify and bear witness to Christ. If you're a teacher, you can do this. If you're unemployed and searching for a job, you can do this. If you have cancer, you can do this. If you are well-educated or not well-educated, you can do this. You know, I think about our, our, our brother uh, Peter, who's still in the, in the hospital, uh, who, as, as most of you know, had, had one of his toes amputated last week due to that infection. And, and the times that I've, I've visited him, I, I've walked away more encouraged than, than he. I'm, I'm trying to go and encourage him, and he's, I'm walking away encouraging, he's encouraging me, and I feel bad about that. But one of the things that's so encouraging about it is, is that he, despite this affliction that he's going through, and, and, and believe me, he's not happy to have his toe removed and all the other financial issues and other stresses that are coming with this situation, but he's trying to stay on point. He's trying to stay on mission in that hospital bed, thinking about how he can bear witness for Christ, even as he is in that situation, being a representative to Jesus, of Jesus, to all the people that are there in the hospital. Anybody can do this. If you're a stay-at-home mom all day long, you can bear witness to the character of Jesus through your love and through your patience and Christ's exalting joy as you change that diaper for the 100th time. And believe me, moms, that is gospel preparation. It is. 
That, that is tilling the soil and getting it ready for the time when the child is old enough to understand, and your Christ-like character that you have been exhibiting all along will help that child to recognize Christ when you do have those explicit conversations later on. Nobody's exempt from this. The only people who don't do the works that Jesus did that bear witness to Jesus are unbelievers. And nobody does this perfectly. If if you're one of these, you know, I don't know, you have perfectionist tendencies and you're sitting there now just kicking yourself and thinking, all the times you failed to do this. Remember, nobody does this perfectly. Only one man did this perfectly, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes I don't get this right. (laughs) You're saying, amen, Deemer. I know you don't get it right. Sometimes you don't get it right. Sometimes we fail to do the works Jesus did, but, but God willing, we are all growing in this area. And let's have our eye on that target. You know, Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, and he said that knowing full well that you ain't. And you won't be on this side of heaven. But know this, Harbin's church, you have a grand and glorious calling, and that is to do the works that Jesus did. Don't give that calling the short shrift. Some of y'all probably feel useless. Ah, oh, I just, I, I, I do this in my life. I'm not doing, you know, some of y'all like, well, Billy Graham just died and he just had this, you know, amazing, I, didn't, I haven't preached to, you know, five million people. And, and, and then, you, you know, you feel bad about that. But you have a grand and glorious calling if God has called you to go into an office every day and do a very boring job surrounded by unbelievers And that is the theater in which you are to put Christ on display and do His works. It's a grand and glorious calling to do the works that Jesus did. But you know what, guys? It gets even better than that. If you believe in Jesus, you will do greater works than Jesus does. Now, that is a staggering promise. Some of you are looking in the Bible to make sure that's in there. (laughs) I mean, that is an amazing promise. It sounds too good to be true. But again, Jesus just said a few verses back, he's the truth. He's telling you the truth. He, He says it, and so we should believe it. And again, this is not referring to a select few. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, greater works than these will he do. Now, What are the greater works? What do you think they are? Again, it's not signs and wonders. We've already been over this. You're not going to heal more people than Jesus. You're not going to raise more people from the dead than Jesus. You're not going to walk on larger bodies of water than Jesus. He walked on the Sea of Galilee. You'll walk on the Pacific Ocean. Is that what what it means by by greater works? No. So, So what does he mean? Well, again, looking for clues here in the words of Jesus, we get, we get a significant clue when He gives us the reason why we will do greater works than Jesus. What's the reason why? It says it in your text. He says, and greater works than these will He do. Why? Because I go to the Father. When Jesus says, I go to the Father, He's thinking cross, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus going to the Father will be the basis for the greater works that you will do. In other words, think about it this way. 
if Jesus doesn't go to the Father, we can't do the greater works. But Jesus' ascension to the Father will trigger something that will release the greater works in his followers. And as the rest of chapter 14 unfolds, and we're going to look at this more in the next couple of weeks, we'll discover that Jesus' return to the Father will lead to His sending of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And the Spirit will be with His disciples, both then and now, forever. So, it's the beginning of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that will open up the door to the greater works that we will do. As we consider what Jesus means by greater works, we have another significant clue. We're we're like detectives today, looking for clues. We have another significant clue in John chapter 5. You can turn over there with me. It's just a few pages back. And it's the only other place in John's gospel where we find the term greater works. That's an important little uh, hermeneutical tip for you when you're going through a book of the Bible, and you see a certain phrase, and you're thinking about it, sometimes it helps to go and see where this is used again to to get a grasp on on what is meant. So, John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, Jesus has done a miraculous work. This time, the work is miraculous. He has healed a paralytic, and He did it on the Sabbath, and you know what that means. Jesus' enemies challenge Him about this. They challenge Him that He is working on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, my Father is working and I am working. I am doing the work my Father does. Sound familiar? Sounds a lot like chapter 14, doesn't it? When Jesus says, we will do the works that He does. But the parallel gets even, even sharper uh, when Jesus says in verse 20, says, the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. In other words, greater works, than mo- uh, greater works than the mere healing of a paralytic. God's got something even greater coming than healing. Greater works. And what are the greater works? Verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. And if you read this section closely, He is talking about spiritual life. The greater works have to do with Jesus giving this kind of life to people, a life that you can have now, not after you die. Now, let's take a step back here and look at the big biblical picture here, the big story. The Bible teaches that man's natural condition is a state of death. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our sins. The Bible teaches that in the beginning, when God created man, Adam and Eve, at one time they were alive. They were perfect. They were without sin. They loved God. They loved one another. They were spiritually alive. And God warned them that the day that they turn away from God would be the day that they would die, because the wages of sin is death. And Adam and Eve determined that they did not need God and that they wanted to be God. And they rejected God's kindness and revolted against the heavenly king. And the moment they did so, they died. They didn't drop dead physically. 
immediately, but their spirits died. They became infected with sin. You see the death play out immediately. Their love for God was warped into hate and and hiding from God and and, and pointing fingers and accusing God. Uh, The beautiful relationship between the man and the woman became twisted as they were no longer selfless, but selfish. As the man is, 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 is accusing and blaming the woman, and they're butting heads with one another. Their relationship with God became severed, and just like a body without oxygen dies, so a soul disconnected from God wilts and dies. And the body, originally constructed to live forever, eventually dies as well. And that sinful nature was passed on to all of Adam's descendants, including you and me. Anyone who denies that humans are born with a sinful nature has never had children. Or they ignore the children that they have. There's a reason why you have to teach a child to do... uh, There's a reason why you don't have to teach a child to do what's wrong. It comes naturally. They're quite capable of knowing how to do what's wrong on their own, thank you very much. They don't need you telling them that. And isn't it interesting that you always have to teach them what is right? And little two-year-old tyrants grow into 20-year-old tyrants who grow into 80-year-old tyrants, hating God, wanting our own way, willful slaves of sin. The Bible says there's no one good, not one, that we love to... We love to justify ourselves and think that we are more awesome than we really are. The Bible says no one naturally seeks God. The Bible says we naturally are hostile to God, warring and raging against Him because our hearts before God are like hearts of stone. That's what it means to be dead. And that state of spiritual death gives way to bodily death, and at the end of it all, as just payment for our treason, God will will rightly cast body and soul into hell forever. Jesus calls it the resurrection of judgment. This is the very worst kind of situation a man can be in. It is as hopeless as a condition as you can imagine. And so this brings us back now to John chapter 5. Jesus has healed this paralytic man, and everyone is up in arms over that. And Jesus says, just you wait. Son of God's going to do greater works than this. The paralytic got healed, but his body's going to grow old and break down again, and he's going to die in just a few years like everyone else. In verse 24, look at verse 24 if you're still in John 5, Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. That's the kind of life that, that Jesus was talking about earlier in the chapter. Again, Jesus is talking about a spiritual life, a salvation that does not begin when you die, but is available right now to whoever hears and believes. If you're here this morning as an unbeliever, and you believe in Jesus, you have this wonderful promise, you will cross over from a state of death into a state of life. Elsewhere, the Bible describes salvation as God changing that heart of stone that hated God into a heart of flesh that now loves God. The Bible describes salvation as regeneration. This process, this ongoing process, where our selfish, sinful attitudes begin to be transformed bit by bit throughout our lives. As the Scripture says, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. Ephesians chapter 2 
describes salvation as resurrection. The Apostle Paul, after saying how we were dead in our trespasses and slaves to sin and Satan with God's wrath on the horizon, then says these glorious words, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In salvation, we become spiritually awakened and renewed. We become forgiven of our sins and trespasses, and we experience the joy and satisfaction that comes with knowing God. But it gets better. Salvation is not just for right now, and it's not just spiritual. Instead, salvation gives you a life with God extended into eternity with the hopeful promise that the curse of physical death will be reversed. So again, if you're still in verse uh, John 5, look at verse 28. Jesus says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His life and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life. So, greater works, greater works are works that are pertaining to salvation from sin through belief in Jesus that leads to eternal life starting now with the hope of resurrection from the dead later, a resurrection of life. And so now, you can go back to John 14, Jesus promises that you, Harbin's church, are involved in these greater works. And this commission to do greater works is not a commission to heal paralytics or walk on water. It's something greater than that. There is no greater work, friends. There is no greater work than the resurrection of people who are spiritually dead. Give me a greater work than that, that you could be involved in. People who are spiritually dead, bound in their sins, who hate God and are hell-bound, there is no greater work to be involved with than the work that raises up spiritually dead people, seeing, uh, seeing them transformed into lovers of God, seeing their sins forgiven, knowing that, he- uh, that heaven is now their destiny. Jesus says to these trembling, discouraged, depressed disciples, friends, you are going to do what I do and even greater works. Now, you may have this question running through your mind. You're, you're, you're tracking somewhat with me, but, but you're, you're wondering how in the world can it be that our gospel work is greater than Jesus' work? It almost seems blasphemous to even suggest that Jesus' disciples would do greater works than Jesus had not Jesus said it. How's the work that they do, and how's the work that we do actually greater than what Jesus did? Well, if you keep reading the Bible and you finish the Gospel of John, the next book is the book of Acts. And what's happening in the book of Acts? Physical miracles? Yes, there are some, but not as much as what you see during the ministry of Jesus. The emphasis on a- in Acts is not on physical miracles, believe it or not. The emphasis is on the global spread of the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. In the book of Acts, we see that a new age has dawned. The last days have begun. 
And the Holy Spirit has broken into history in a way that he never has before. He fills and empowers the early church to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, starting in Jerusalem, then moving on to Judea, spreading out into Samaria, and expanding to the ends of the earth. Now, Jesus anticipated this Spirit-empowered ministry when He cried out in John chapter 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John goes on to say, to explain this, he says, Now this he said about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, he had not yet gone to the Father. So again... There's this anticipation of a future work of the Spirit through His people that will come upon believers, giving them spiritual life and refreshment and satisfaction like water, so they won't be thirsty anymore. And the work of the Spirit through His people, Jesus says in John 7, is so powerful that it doesn't just bless and satisfy the individual who believes, but out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The the implication is that the all-satisfying Spirit who brings peace and joy to believers will work through the believer to touch and transform other dead, thirsty, parched souls. And that's exactly what's happening in the book of Acts. We see the Holy Spirit-empowered church proclaiming that that which has been expected and that which has been long predicted and that what has been long hoped for, that thing has finally arrived. Salvation is here. And the work of the Spirit has come. John Piper writes this. It's very helpful as as he considers how the work that we do now is greater than before the cross. Piper writes that all salvation up until now had been by anticipation, by promise of the coming Redeemer, But now that Jesus has gone to the Father, now that He had been crucified, buried, raised, exalted, the great purchase of forgiveness by substitution was finished once for all. Piper goes on to explain that what Jesus is essentially saying here is that even when I have forgiven sinners during my earthly life, I have forgiven them in anticipation of that. But you will proclaim forgiveness on the finished basis of that. The Spirit in you will be the Spirit of the crucified and risen Christ. The message you preach will be the message of not a promised ransom, but a paid ransom, a complete payment, a finished propitiation. That's a greater work. That's the glorious work you and I get to be a part of. Folks, we live in an age that the prophets of old could only dream about and long for. Did you know that? Do you know we live in a greater epic of history than they did? They lived in the age of redemptive promise. We live in the age of redemptive fulfillment due to the finished work of Christ. It's a better age. It's a better time. And God has graciously put you in it. And unlike the earthly ministry of Christ, which was geographically restricted to Israel, 
Jesus now works through the Spirit-empowered church to reach every tribe and tongue and nation. Is there a greater thing? Is there a greater work that, that can be done right now apart from bearing witness to a, a Christ and, and a gospel that God uses to bring about the salvation of dead souls all over the world? Some people think that spectacular visual signs and wonders are where it's at. Healing people from diseases, walking on water. Some people today crave those signs and those wonders, and they spend their lives chasing after those things. But friends, there's something greater. Think about how God measures greatness. He measures greatness differently than we do. Remember in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out the disciples to preach, and He gave them power to do miracles. And the disciples come back, and they are elated. They are excited. And they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. we got these powers. We do all kinds of cool things. And Jesus turns to them, and He says, do not rejoice in this, that spirits are subjected to you, that you can cast out demons, but instead rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The disciples rejoiced over these supernatural powers they had, but Jesus says, rejoice more in salvation. Rejoice more over people being rescued from the kingdom of darkness and delivered into the kingdom of light. That is something that is much more worthy of a party. Rejoice over people who were on the road to hell and now instead have a place in the Father's house. There is no greater miracle than when God totally transforms someone's heart and life and causes them to be born again. That's why I get so mad at these ministries that they're, all they're about are, are seeking after are these audiovisual manifestations and, and supernatural displays and having all these weird things go on in their church services, and they're calling it the Holy Spirit. I think so much of it is garbage. And meanwhile, they've got this word and this gospel, and they're not preaching it. Shame! on the churches of America that do that. And shame on us when we elevate other works above gospel work. There is no greater work than this. If I have to choose between raising corpses from the ground and gospel work that raises spiritually dead people to eternal life, friends, I'm picking gospel every time. Gospel every time. That's really the greater miracle. That's the greater work. That's the most spectacular manifestation of the power of God in the world. I'm not saying that God doesn't heal people anymore. I hope that's not what you hear me saying. I pray for people to be healed all the time. Sometimes He responds in the affirmative, and sometimes He's got a better plan than I do. But folks, let's keep our eye on the ball. Let's keep our eye on the greater works. The way to satisfy people's deepest needs, the way to combat the social ills and problems of our country. We've been talking a lot about gun control lately and gun violence and all other kind of issues. The way to transform the world is not through giving lots of money to charity, as good as that is. And it's not through politics, as useful as sometimes it can be. And other times, it doesn't seem to be very useful at all. The only thing that can address the deepest troubles of our land 
and the lives of individuals and our world is the gospel. And that has, that's what's been entrusted to us. You and I have been entrusted with a greater work and a greater responsibility and a greater task than the President of the United States has been granted with. Did you know that? Lord, help me to believe that more. We all have a role to play in God's global plan to reach the nations. You've got a role in that. So are you investing your life in the greater work of the gospel? Are you using your resources, your money, your time in ways that further worldwide greater works? And are you doing it with your own life? Who's the last person you've shared the good news of Jesus with? I'm I'm not just pushing you, I'm pushing me too, all right? We're, We're all in this together. When was the last time you prayed for a lost person? Are we looking for opportunities to bear witness for Christ, to do the greater works, to be salt and light and show people the way? I know that it can be scary, and I know it can be intimidating. Sometimes it intimidates me too. You may feel ill-equipped and inadequate to be about the work of the gospel. You, you, you just may feel just so poorly equipped to do this greater thing that Jesus has called you to do. And that's why Jesus' final promise in this section is so encouraging, and it's this, that last one there. If you believe in Jesus, you can ask anything in Jesus' name, and Jesus will do it. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That is a spectacular promise, is it not? But be careful. This verse has often been misapplied. This is not a blank check from God. This is not saying, this is not saying, if you say, Jesus, I want a brand new car, Ferrari, make it red, and when I step outside in the parking lot, right here out after church, it's going to be sitting right there, I want that, and I'll use it for the glory of God, and I want that, oh, in Jesus' name, amen. doesn't mean that you're going to get that. Jesus says, we need to ask for our request in, in His name so that the Father may be glorified. Did you catch that? A lot of people don't catch that. He says, I'll do it that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's the purpose of Jesus answering prayer. The Father may be glorified. And he says, ask in my name. When we ask in Jesus' name, well, it means many things, but, it, but among them it means, it, it means uh, it's a recognition that everything we are asking for must be in line with Jesus' person, Jesus' mission, Jesus' priorities, and it must be for things that will glorify God above all else. So we need to filter our prayers through those things and trust that whatever lines up with all of those things, Jesus is going to do for you. But folks, the Father's got veto power here. It's not a blank check. You pray for something, Father's like, okay, I understand why you're saying that, but actually this here is going to glorify me more, so... I'm going to veto that. He's got the right to do that. And he's got the wisdom to do it. He knows what to veto and what bills to pass, so to speak. So you can 
pray for the Ferrari all you want in Jesus' name. And if it doesn't line up with his plans, his purposes, his priorities, guess what? You're still going to drive to work and you're a piece of junk tomorrow. Consider Jesus' promise in context. What has Jesus just told the disciples? You will do works that I do. You'll do even greater works. So we want to think about verses 13 and 14 in light of verse 12, and really in light of all of chapter 14. He's saying, yes, I'm going to the Father, but that's a good thing, disciples. When I am gone, you will carry on the work. You will do what I do. Take heart, disciples. This isn't the end. In fact, we're just getting started. You're going to do even greater things, and whatever you need to accomplish the mission I have for you, I will give it to you. I won't be here with you physically, but I will be present through the Spirit, and all the resources of of, of my power are at your disposal to give you what you need to do what I have called you to do. Now, by the way, do you notice the first-person pronoun that Jesus uses in these verses? Typically, when we think of prayer, we think of us going to the Father in the name of Jesus, don't we? Uh, We think of asking the Father for things, and we're taught that by the Lord Jesus Himself elsewhere in the Lord's Prayer. Remember the opening lines of the Lord's Prayer? Uh, He he says, "'Our Father who is in heaven.'" So yes, that's that's a good and right way to pray. It's good to pray directly to the Father. Do it and do it often. But I just want you to notice here that we see something a little different. Look at what Jesus says again, verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. I will do that the Father might be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus is personally involved here in the situation. In this situation here, in this scenario, we're asking Jesus directly. And 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 it's, it's Jesus who will grant the request. Sometimes people have asked me, is it okay just to pray directly to Jesus? I, th- I think that's fine. You can do that. I think it's fine to pray to any member of the Trinity. They're all God after all. Holy Spirit, come and help me. Empower me. Fill me. That's a good prayer. Jesus, save me. That's a good prayer. Father, give me my daily bread. That's a good prayer. How encouraging, though, that Jesus' specific words of using this personal pronoun, I, how encouraging that must have been to the disciples who are afraid and distraught because Jesus is going away. They don't even know how they're going to make it without Him. And yet, and yet, even though He's about to go away and ascend to heaven, Jesus turns to them and says, we will still have a relationship even when I'm not here physically. You're you're not alone. I've given you these greater works to do, but I'm going to be right there with you, and you can ask me for stuff. You can ask me for things to help you in this mission, and and I'm going to hear that, and I will give it to you. If you're here this morning as a disciple of Jesus, it doesn't matter that Jesus isn't, isn't here physically. It's actually better that he's not. We'll explore that more later as we go deeper into John 14. You have a relationship with Jesus You can go directly to Jesus and ask Him for whatever you want, and if Jesus in His wisdom deems that that indeed is something you need to do the greater works to glorify Him, guess what? He's going to give it to you. Prayer does change things, by the way. It does. Some of us who are really big on the sovereignty of God, and I'm a big sovereignty of God guy. I believe God oversees and controls everything. The the, the lot is cast in the lap, but, but its outcome is from the Lord. Scripture says. So I, I, I believe that. 
But sometimes we need to be careful. Sometimes big, big sovereignty guys, big S on their chest, sovereignty, sovereign. Big sovereignty guys can uh, descend into an error, error of being um, uh, somewhat uh, uh, fatalistic, deterministic. Oh, well, you know, God's going to do what God's going to do. He's sovereign, so why, why pray? That's not biblical. God says, pray. There are things that, are, that, that are, are going to happen that will only happen if you pray. And then God responds. The Bible says uh, elsewhere in the book of James, you have not because you ask not. The implication there is that if you, if you just ask, you'd have. So don't let your hearts be troubled, disciples. Don't let your hearts be troubled, Harpens Church. Jesus has not abandoned you. The work is not over. It's just begun. You have a role to play in continuing the work of Jesus on the earth. Indeed, Harbin's Church, you will do greater things. And whatever you need to accomplish for your mission, whether that is boldness, whether that is energy, whether that is time, whether that's opportunity, ask Jesus. Just ask Him. Just start asking Him today. Ask Him for whatever it is. He will freely give it to you as it is in line with His wonderful purposes to glorify God. He's not stingy. He's not. He really isn't. He's generous. I hope this morning will be the start of a renewed commitment from us all to intentionally live our lives in such a way where we are seeking to do the greater works. And if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus, today is the day of salvation. If God is awakening faith in you right now, if you are being spiritually awakened and raised from the dead, it's time for you to turn from your sins to trust in Christ now, trust in His work on the cross, which pays for sins, receive His forgiveness, become a child of God through faith, and then join us in doing the works of Jesus that will change the world. Let's pray.